Hello, and welcome to the Remedy House podcast, where I talk about new knowledge, resources, and books for anyone curious about mental health. My name is Renee Watson, and I'm so grateful to be chatting with you. If you're new here, welcome. If you're not new, thank you so much for your support. Any links or resources mentioned in this podcast will be linked under the podcast tab on my website at remedy.house. I am so glad to be back with y'all in 2023. My intention was for this wrap-up, this is a wrap-up 2022 um, podcast, my hope was that I would get it up in December and it would be the last one of the year, but toddlers and colds go hand in hand this season, so I was bested by a cold that... um, made me lose my voice. So it was very hard to podcast. I am mostly better, but if I cough or clear my throat, that is me just working through everything. So <clears throat> there it is. So what I wanted to wrap up is every resource that I used last year for my three podcasts that really influenced me and changed how I view my work in mental health in general, but also um, clinical work and the work and um, techniques, technologies, modalities, all of those things that I have learned about, but also continue to use and see others use. Um, this is normal and natural, obviously, because in our work as clinicians in any field, there are going to be updates and more so recently now in this modern era than uh, previously. So things come and go very quickly. Um, So I want to give you my resources. A lot of these things I've already spoken about, um, books I've used, um, articles I've researched. If you're subscribed to my Substack newsletter, you will see more of those things regularly every month than if you just listen to the podcast. A note there, I have been saying that I'm going to put my resources on my website. And I'm so sorry, I need to change my intro outro to reflect the reality that I'm going to put um, resources, everything that I can in the the description box of the podcast. It'll also be in my Substack, and it will reflect that on my website when you go to the podcast page. But I just wanted to clarify that while I was thinking about it. So moving on to the good stuff, um, I wanted to talk about these resources, my hopes for next year as well. And I wanted to also do a little, um, not disclaimer, I wanted to share a little bit of what I learned this year in this profession. And as I go through the process of getting my license and, and all of those things, I wanted to say for anyone who has not graduated with their master's for their counseling program. Um, I encourage you. It is a really hard road. It is a lot required of us, and it is done differently than typical medical field degrees. Um, What you have to do and how you do things a lot of times can put the onus on you as a person, and we have finite resources individually. So I wanted to encourage you, if you ever have any questions, if you would ever like any guidance, I would love to be able to help with that because I wish I had someone 
who's willing to just share their time freely um, with me. So if you do have any questions about that, for sure, send me an email and I will get back to you. I can promise you that. Um, Also, if you're someone like me who has completed their master's and is going for their licensure and they're studying for their exam and looking for positions and things like that, I want to encourage you as well because it is also difficult. It is just another step in the road, but it feels like these are such huge steps and they can be. They're expensive. They take a lot of time. They take a lot of focus and they take a lot of the resources you would very typically um, spend on yourself, your faith, maybe your family. So I encourage you there. Again, if you need encouragement, you want to vent, you have thoughts, I would love to get an email from you and just be able to talk, communicate, build a little community there. It feels better when you're not alone. Um, And recently this year, this might be something that I talk about next year, but recently this year, I had a little bit of a midlife crisis right on time. Mr. Levinson, if you get that, please shout out. Like, please let me know. (laughs) This is very um, counselor-y right there. Um, I had a bit of a midlife crisis in that I was trying to get over the fact that I have not achieved things that I wanted to, and I've achieved things that I didn't know I wanted to. Um, It's been wonderful, and it's been difficult, and it's just life. But again, I might share more of this with you, but that's why Remedy House has kind of taken on new life, and I'm glad you're here with me. If you've been with me since the beginning of last year where I I put up one podcast and Um, couldn't get another one up until the end of the year. Thank you so much. And if you're new to this podcast, thank you so much for being here. And I hope you'll continue with me as I become more consistent in 2023 and things um, change and grow for me. So that's wonderful. Okay, real quick, I just wanted to read this quote for you. This is kind of where I want us to go for the new year. It's from a book I'm reading right now called This Is Where You Belong. And you'll probably hear me talk about this into the future because it's related to the topics that I will get into early this year. Um, In this book, the author is talking about moving to a new city and just being a chronic mover. And she talks about what she really loved about a new city wasn't all the things she thought she loved about it, like, um, you know finding a new house or um, getting to be in a walkable city or the weather, etc. Really what she realized is it was the thrill of possibility that made her love the idea of moving. Um, There is much more to this book, but the reason I wanted to read you that quote is because I think January 1st, what we love is the thrill of possibility and we put a lot of pressure there professionally or otherwise. And I want to give you a disclaimer. This year, you can be fully yourself, and that is awesome. Whether that means as a clinician, you are growing, or you're surviving, or you're giving, or you're taking. I think all of that is wonderful, and I feel like being able to live that freely with those opportunities as a human helps you be a better clinician now or in the future. And that is acceptable. So I just wanted to encourage with that before we get into the nitty gritty of resources, because I wish that someone had told me that as I was learning more and more about how to be fully myself as a clinician. So future podcasts to come on that, 
But as we um, talk this year, I hope you'll keep that in mind. Um, Okay, great. Okay, moving on. I will start with the books that I read this year. Um, These are not all the books I read this year. These are not all books um, that I have talked about on this podcast, but they are books that have changed how I see very particular pieces of this industry and work and career. I will start with the memoirs. Um, the first is Collected Schizophrenias by Esme Weijian Wang. Um, <clears throat> this is a memoir, and I will tell you, first of all, I do not actually rate memoirs, or I do my best to not do that publicly. Um, not necessarily the writing or anything like that, but I think as people in mental health, one thing you value heavily is just people being honest and sharing with you. Um, you get so much work done allowing people to be vulnerable in front of you and keeping that safe space. And so it's really hard for me to read a memoir and then say it was five stars. So I'm not going to do that. Um, obviously I loved and benefited from everything I read that I'm mentioning. Um, but I don't typically rate things. So just for the future. So Collected Schizophrenia is by Esme Weijian Wang. Um, this is an author and an artist who is very public about her experience. Obviously she wrote this memoir, but also she has an Instagram that I follow where she really talks about her life and she encourages others and she gives tips and thoughts and processes about living with schizophrenia. I loved this um, novel because of the way that she was so frank about just what was going on with her. Um, It was very helpful to me as a new clinician. It was also helpful to me as someone who wants to know the heart of these things that we read about. Um, It's very hard for me to look at the DSM and then say, okay, I know exactly what this looks like living it out practically. I don't know that. And I think that's where memoirs help. I think it would be very um, diminishing to call them expanded case studies. But if that's something that you struggle with, like kind of uh, visualizing or understanding the person behind these things, I encourage you to read memoirs like this. Esme's was amazing and beautiful. And I learned so much about the nuances and day-to-day life of someone who experiences schizophrenia. And um, I was just encouraged because she encouraged me. It was, it was incredibly powerful. So I loved it. Um, Another book was Disability Visibility by Alice Wong. This is a collection of stories, short stories, effectively from people with various, um, living with various disabilities. So maybe they're physical or cognitive or however emotional. And when I tell you that this book was powerful for me, I think, okay, I I might say this about every book, so sorry. It was spectacularly powerful for me because, one, it focuses on a various... Um, on various disabilities, like I said, physical, cognitive, mental health, or mental. And why that's important to me is because I don't live my life necessarily in like traumatic brain injuries. We we touch on that. There is a big part of our work that touches on that. And you need to be knowledgeable about that. But 
being able to live there for a little bit is incredible for someone who doesn't necessarily study that deeply. Physical disabilities, same thing. I mean, we will get clients who sit in front of us with physical disabilities, and I've experienced that. And being able to hear what their life is like, like what they're fighting against, the tools they have, the tools they're missing, it makes me better. Uh, it makes me a better counselor. It makes me a better person. It makes me a better advocate. And these are all things that very typically come through experience. I also loved this book because when you're studying it, you're reading about it, you're writing about it, you're counseling, you're being supervised, all of those things, it's very easy to kind of be in this space where you're always talking about it and become you become a little bit jaded sometimes, you know, like been there, done that. And I hate to say that because it feels so rude. Like I don't have another word for it. It feels unkind, but I am human. And if you're out there and you're human too, I know when you hear it every day, you become desensitized to it a little bit. And putting a name and a voice to these experiences helps me remember why I do the work that I do and why I do get do experience a secondhand trauma and what that's worth and what I'm really doing. So um, highly recommend this book for perspective, for kind of broadening your experiential horizons and stepping into a more empathetic place so that you can do that for clients when they come about um, in your in your career or in your life. So Disability Visibility by Alice Wong. Um, I, she is also on Instagram and I encourage you to follow her because she empowers and uplifts a lot of voices. Um, <clears throat> the last memoir is I'm Telling the Truth But I'm Lying by Nyonyo Mbasi Ikpi. And this author is, um, so I really liked this book. This book was another book by someone who experiences schizophrenia, I believe. And she is from a family who immigrated to the United States. It's really close to my heart because so am I. And I have a special kinship with people who come from immigrant families, um, especially the African diaspora, because there will be parts of that story where I'm like nodding my head and I don't even realize how much it's touching pieces of my history and childhood and current life. So very cool to read her story and be able to understand a lot of what she's talking about, the pressures and, and things like that. And then when she goes into areas where I'm unfamiliar, unfamiliar or don't understand her experience, it's stretching me and helping me to learn how my culture or um, just the qualities of cultures that are similar are creating more struggle. And I think that that's really important when we're talking about inclusive counseling um, I can't just translate and and stamp my culture on all immigrant families or all African diaspora um, clients. It is nuanced. It is very unique to the person. 
And this helps me remember that and practice that in my thought life as I read this book and other books similar. So highly recommend this for anyone who, again, is looking to personalize these DSM diagnoses that we haven't experienced personally. This is how we're going to get that experience is by reading these memoirs. And I say movies, but I feel like reading is so much more immersive, but I am obviously very biased. So um, reading and then also just if you want to be an inclusive counselor, if that's something that's important to you, which it should be, um, please let it be important to you. I encourage you to read memoirs like this because it is one thing to read what a particular culture may want statistically, but it is incredibly helpful to understand what cultures um, really do experience and what the norms are they're pushing that they may not even um, act on. So very cool. So we're heading into just nonfiction territory. Um, the first is Molecule of More by Daniel Z. Lieberman. You've heard me talk about this, so I'm just going to skim. Um, this is just about the dopamine cycle in the brain. It's incredible. Um, the brain is bigger and better and more flexible and fluid than we ever thought before. If you have not read anything um, about neuropsych or neurology in recent years, I encourage you to pick up at least one of these books that I'm going to mention. It will help you just understand more about how CBT, DBT, EMDR, all these things are coming out are really touching on what researchers are doing. I think it's very, very important. Um, same thing with Louder Than Words by Benjamin K. Bergen, who explores how meaning is made through language in the brain, how it's oriented and visualized or not visualized. Again, exceptionally important when we're talking about is it um, is CBT really working or how are we using language in session or is this homework benefiting the client or, you know, how any of those topics, being able to look at these mechanics and um, know what know what they're doing, you can explain that better to the client, feels a little bit more tangible, but also you can do better work because you know exactly what you're manipulating in the neurology. Of course, there are a lot of caveats there. Neuroscience is where it is and it's not 20 years in the future. So we have to be careful with what we are attempting to do. But I think this is just very powerful to know how, how the language is working in the brain. Um, another neuropsych book, How Emotions Are Made by Lisa Feldman Barrett. I mean, honestly, I feel like 40 years from now, we are going to be recommending this book be read in classrooms um, by every mental health clinician. I think it's a very important book because what Barrett goes into is she effectively is debunking a lot of the facial recognition, um, emotion, or I should say facial recognition-based emotion creation science that has been out there forever. I know when I started looking into counseling, that was a huge part of what people, what a lot of science believed to be true. I think, I mean, I still have textbooks, I think, that um, talked about it. And so I encourage you to read this book because it does explain the potential avenues of making emotion, meaning-making in the brain, which of course is very important to our work, but it also goes on to 
talk about the brain in general and a lot of predictive measures the brain has, which is incredibly important, how that affects meaning making, how that affects um, language in our brain, how that affects how we interact with others, all of which is extremely important to counseling and healing and all of that stuff. She has a smaller book that I haven't read yet, and I think it's Seven Small Lessons About the Brain or something like that. I will be reading it this year. It's on my to-be-read bookshelf, but if you're a bibliophile at all, in any um, category, you'll know that a TBR bookshelf is a little bit of a joke. So I hope to get to it this year, and I may be talking about it, but apparently it very cleverly wraps up a lot of what's in um, How Emotions are made. So very giftable too. Um, so one book that really caught me off guard this year was Women Rowing North by Mary Piper. Um, she is a clinician and she has been in the game, so to speak, for some time. She's written a few books and I have them on my shelf somewhere because I loved her books so much that when I saw them... Uh, at a th thrift bookstore, I picked them right up. But R Women Row Rowing North, I think, is um, her latest book. And it talks about aging as a woman, coming into your own, and uh, empty nesting, and being left behind by a spouse, um, and growing friendships. And when I read it, it really was, I'm in my 30s, and my early 30s. And when I read, when I picked it up, I was like, okay, this will be a good exploration for me to understand older clients and maybe more gracefully age. Um, but it is so incredibly relevant because a lot of the fighting we do as women now in our 20s and 30s really does change how we age. It reflects how we relate to other women. It reflects on how we work and how we fight in other spaces, not just for women, but um, other civil spaces, um, how we relate to our kids or how we want to relate to our kids. All of that is so significantly affected by what she talks about in this book. And it kind of floored me. I don't think that I thought of my life in that way yet. Um, I think I thought, okay, like I have time to kind of figure out how I want to relate and do all of that when that part of life comes and we're doing so much of that preparatory work now that it really does affect how we end up aging and living our life out in 30 years. So I'm extremely grateful for her for writing it down, for taking the time and sharing her story and sharing the stories of others. Highly recommend it to all of you clinicians out there, no matter the age, um, it would be an excellent book if you practice bibliotherapy um, for just perspective taking, aging, empty nesting, transition of stage as a woman, um, even for someone who is not a woman um, who feels like they can benefit from understanding that perspective a little bit more, um, those nuances, because she does really talk about these small nuances that I think if you live as a woman, it is something that you experience and you feel, but you may never talk about. And it's just understood between other women who have to tread those same paths because um, 
that's what women have to do in our culture. So very important book. And I hope many, many of you read it and recommend it. Um, and the second to last book, Know Thyself by Stephen Fleming. So my first <clears throat> uh, podcast in January of last year, I talked about self-awareness and how important that was for a clinician. I think every clinician is told that, um, period. Like in the beginning, professional orientation course, self-awareness is key. And then it's just very much repeated throughout your entire coursework. I think that's exceptionally important. I'm so glad that that's something we're told. I think a lot of times it does not click in until we get to a certain place in our lives, what that awareness really means or looks like or feels like for us. Do we journal about it? Is that how we gain that awareness? Um, do we talk about it? Do we go to our own clinician? Do we read books? Do we watch movies? How do we reconnect with our own selves? Um, I love Stephen Fleming's book because what he talks about is the neuropsychology of it all and what it really means to um, embrace metacognition and realize it's there. And this is very CBT kind of thing. Like, think about your thinking um, and how you talk about what you think and how that affects what you think and all of those very meta um, ideas that you practice in session or, in, or encourage in session or give for homework. Um, I loved it so, so much because it shows the mechanics of what we're doing and it goes hand in hand with um, How Emotions Are Made by Lisa Feldman, Feldman Barrett. Highly encourage you to read those two together. I think, honestly, they would be life-changing for you if you did that. And I am not exaggerating. I think because it just puts so many things together that in, neuro, in neuropsychological terms that we don't necessarily get as clinicians in our master's programs or in our CEUs unless we pursue those topics directly. So the final book that I am talking about that I, or I'm sorry, that I was influenced by last year was not, it's nonfiction, but it was not aimed at counseling or neuropsychology. So um, I love language in general, just the entire idea of language, the study of language, so linguistics. Um, I will always be talking about it. I can relate it to nearly everything. And I <laughs> wish that working on linguistics or working in linguistics and studying in mental health and neuropsychology had a clear path for me because I think that I would have loved to just sit there and talk about talking all day. So there's still time, but you know, until then I'll just read the books and write the papers and newsletters and podcasts. So this book is called Kingdom of Characters by Jing Su. I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's the language revolution that made China modern. The reason I want to talk about this, because I've read other books on language last year, I just, hands down, this book is clarifying in so many ways. So let me try to sum this up. This book is a larger book, and it talks about the way China had to change and engineer their language, their written language, and inevitably their spoken language, so that they could 
use their language on computer systems. And I don't know a ton about computers. I like as far as like um, coding and, and things like that, how it's made from the ground up kind of stuff. I feel like my all the men in my immediate family are like cringing because they're all some kind of engineer. My dad um, worked for a computer company coding and all of that for years. Um, <clears throat> so there's a confession. I don't know a ton about that, but the way that Latin languages more easily fit into how computers were designed was so encumbering and such an obstacle to the Chinese language, which up until, I mean, more recent than you would assume, it just did not work well as far as like a teaching tool. There was no standardization that could be taught. It was very, it was a very um, culturally personal language. And I say that to mean like the languages within, the cultures within China had personal representations of that language. And when you look at how the symbolism works in the written language and how it translates to the spoken language, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I remember um, I do a lot of Bible studies and things like that. And when I, when you go back into the Greek and the Latin and you look at it and you touch this and you touch that, it is so gorgeous. It is beautiful. The transliteration, um, how they try to use English, this cumbersome um, kind of baby language in many ways to do the work of these heavy hitters like Hebrew and Latin that really um, were embedded in cultural societies that provided great meaning um, and depth of emotion and thought to these to these languages. So um, that's what I found Chinese to be, I guess, postmodern Chinese to be, if I can say it like that. Um, and then how they modernized it and engineered it and made that happen and work was incredibly interesting. I highly recommend this book because what it does is it talks about language and the engineering of language, but it also talks about how China's culture changed and transformed to accommodate technology that was not made there. Um, I think that's very important because a lot of huge technological shifts and changes have occurred outside of other countries, outside of our country, and accommodating that technology within a new culture requires shifting and accommodation and assimilation. It requires a lot of um, taking a step back and maybe throwing things away and picking up other things. And I think it's truly a part of our modern day life to look at new technology that's presented to us daily and figure out if that works for us or if that's culturally relevant to us. Um, and I could be talking about a pen or a note, a type of notebook or something like that. And that's really the work we're doing. And I think that's a huge part of decision fatigue. And I'm going to digress a little bit <laughs> because I'm getting off topic. But it talks about how the culture had to change to accommodate this change in technology that affected language. Um, it talked about how the Chinese culture had to um, grow up in a lot of ways, but also expand. And I think that it was amazing to watch different members of this society step up and do huge, momentous things for 
a culture, just this one individual, just do huge things for this linguistic culture. It was absolutely thrilling to read for me. If you're into that, I highly recommend it. Um, I laughed, I cried, it broke my heart in some places. Um, I have a new appreciation for the Chinese language. Um, I put more effort into making sure I understood the differences um, between Korean and Japanese and Chinese, not necessarily learning all three, but learning um, the distinguishing features. Um, and I think that I realized more about how language holds so much of our culture and what it meant for China to give up and grow new new um, ways of speaking and translating and communicating. And so, um, again, if you're a counselor who wants to be inclusive, um, I think it is very important for you to take a dive into cultures in this way. Um, maybe not language for you. Maybe it's sports or something like that. Um, I personally think language holds a lot of cultural meaning. So that's part of the reason I love it and read about it. But um, definitely recommend this book. It was incredible. The author is excellent. Um, for this topic, I told, I think I recommended this to one of my brothers and um, I wasn't sure if he was like, I don't think I will ever read about words being rewritten, but thank you. <laughs> but this author did such a great job with this book. It was, it was infinitely interesting. I loved it. Um, okay. That is the end of the books that truly influenced me. Kind of. Um, moving on to articles. These articles I'm going to po put in the description box, I promise. Um, one of them, one of these resources is actually, it's actually a book, but it's a collection of research articles. Um, this I will say is, it's called Racial Linguistics by H. Sammy Elim. I believe he compiled all of these um disparate parts and put them together. It's excellent. I loved it. And I will tell you why. Um, it talks about research um, much more qualitative than quantitative. So you're not going to see like, um, you know, statistics that they ran necessarily on lab research. It's a lot of experiential understanding about um, culture and being a person of color and engaging in language in various forms, being multilingual as a person of color and what that made other people do. I love it. I love it so much because it speaks to expectation. It speaks obviously to racism. It speaks to international racism and experience and it's very harrowing in a lot of ways, but it's also incredibly, um, it paints a more nuanced picture of microaggressions or what, um, what people who are of the African diaspora experience in a more global way, um, which I don't think that I read about a lot. So I would experience that again. I I'm sorry. I would recommend that again if you are someone who wants to be an inclusive therapist. Hopefully that's everyone. If you want to kind of get into a more um, high level reading of of um, 
racialized experiences, highly recommend that. That's not all that it is, but it's the best way for me to recommend it. It's the easiest way for me to kind of sum up what your experience might be reading it. So um, it was excellent. I would read it over and over again. Um, it just, it's always been hard for me to read things like that, but that that is something that um, I highly benefited from. So it's a bunch of, of articles, so there are shorter points and you can kind of go through it like that. Um, I read a lot of behavioral scientists. I get a lot of book recommendations from there too. So pretty much anything on behavioral scientists, um, I highly recommend that you like dig into and find references from and, and then use that to kind of inform how you like do your own research and understanding for the year. So that's just a shout out to one of my most favorite resources. I think they have a magazine now. And if you like subscribe to like one edition, you get to watch or listen to already recorded sessions with some pretty great researchers and authors. Um, so I have to look back into that and I will share that as I remember to do that. But I just love, um, I love behavioral scientists. Um, and then there is a, an article, The Stories We Tell Ourselves by Antonia Mufarek. And I, again, will put all of these in the description box. Um, but it basically is talking about narrative therapy and effectively how we construct our realities through our stories. I'm a huge fan of narrative therapy in conjunction with um, other cognitive behavioral theories. And so it was just really cool to read and um, kind of have, um, I believe it was interviewing a researcher and author. And so it was, I remember being, I'm very sorry, a lot of these articles I read on top of other articles while reading books. And so um, I just made a note of it, but I did really love um, just hearing the specifics about how we use stories to kind of retell who we are to ourselves so we can tell others. I will always be a fan of that conversation. And then I'm a little late to the game here. You've probably already heard of it. And I spoke about it in my previous podcast, um, Mere Exposure and Racial Prejudice. Um, I read a piece of, uh, I read a research piece on this, actually several, but I had a particular favorite. And again, I'll post that in the description box. I just love the idea of mere exposure in general. I think it speaks to a lot of the things that we use in counseling like exposure therapy and, um, you know, pretty much all the, the phobia treatments, but also it really does speak to how we cultivate anxiety, like how we store it up for ourselves. Um, and then it also speaks to the community level, um, things that we do to keep ourselves kind of cloistered and how that affects our perception of people. Um, so like, do we, do we have a comfortable social distance with other people groups and cultural groups? And is that okay? And why would we have that? And I think those are great questions to talk about in session. Um, great questions to journal about. And so, um, again, this article was great. It was just very cool reading about the mere exposure therapy and how I believe this one has been, um, tested and replicated, in different ways and in different studies. And so, um, yeah, very, very cool. Um, so I kind of mentioned this earlier. I write a Substack newsletter. So before we wrap up this podcast, I want to encourage you to click the link in the description box to 
subscribe to my Substack because it has a lot of what we talk about here um, more intricately spoken about. And then um, my resources are always, always in that newsletter. And I share a lot there. Things I find, articles, uh, points of research and um, points of interest and thoughts and things like that. So um, it's kind of like a, a mind dump of the topic. And so anytime you enjoy a topic um, you heard on this podcast, it is explored in a deeper fashion there. So I highly encourage you to sign up and I um, appreciate any support there that I get. So thank you for that. Um, so I want to move into talking about next year, or I should say this year, uh, what we're going to talk about. We will start this year. Next podcast will be about my last pillar of practice, which is what my last uh, three podcasts have been about. There are four total. The last one is community. Um, I'm very excited to talk about this topic because it's bigger, more nuanced and relevant than we realize. And I think even as clinicians, there is, there is a way to explore community with ourselves and our clients that I think we might be missing. Um, the world has changed a lot. The world I grew up in no longer exists and it's disorienting sometimes. Um, and so I find that reasserting my idea of community um, can become exhausting because what I used to do doesn't work anymore. Not only because I'm older, but because a lot of these things don't exist um, in the same way they used to, and there are new tools. So I'm going to talk about community in broad strokes in the next podcast, and then I will dive deeper into similar topics in the coming months. Um, after that, I will be talking about um, expand. I will be expanding on just the general neuropsych topics that I enjoy. Um, really, this first part of the year is mapped out, and the rest of the year is kind of a free for all for my imagination. So, if you have any ideas or thoughts um, about what you'd like to hear about or a book you'd like to recommend, I always love those kinds of things. So, please feel free to reach out. Um, also, I wanted to just mention, this is like admin, I am on social media, so I have all those linked on my website and across platforms and things like that. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn, um, but really I'm just active here on uh, my podcast and Substack. I do send out posts when on those platforms that I mentioned previously just a second ago, um, whenever I upload a podcast or when I send out a newsletter. But truly what I found last year is being on any of those platforms significantly and responding and things like that is just not for me. It's not something that I'm able to easily handle and maintain um, sanity. So I don't. Um, the, if you want to talk to me, you will have to email me and um, no DMs, no Facebook Messenger for the most part. Um, or LinkedIn messages. I wish I could be, sometimes I wish I could be more flexible and keep all those avenues open, but it's more than I can keep up with. And if you feel the same way, you know, huzzah, I encourage you to be, um, to just kind of dial it back. It's okay. Like as clinicians, I think we have to be entrepreneurs and we have to be teachers and we have to be this and we have to be that. Um, it can be a lot and I think it can be too much. So 
if you're like me and that's not in the cards for you, you have other things going on and it's just not going to work out to maintain um, your your work as a clinician, your teaching as a clinician, and then have a family plus marketing yourself constantly by maybe dancing to music while you talk about the signs for depression, that's okay. That's not who I am. I can't do it. I've accepted it. I used to think, wow, Renee, you're you're just in your early 30s. Like you should be able to get on Instagram and do all these little cute things. And you know, I can't in school. Um <laughs> I just can't do it. So anyway, yeah, it's a it's a large volume of activity and um it's a lot. So I'm claiming this is absolutely normal for me. So if you want to talk, please email me, uh, Renee at remedy.house. I'll get your email. And I honestly will probably respond fairly instantly um, because it's just way easier for me to do that. Um, and yeah, if you are someone who struggles with that, would you please just send me a little message and say, hey, yeah, that's something that's hard for me too, because the encouragement um, is so needed. I think a lot of times just to normalize. Um, the fact that, you know, social media was not built for an individual human brain to engage everyone globally at the same time and accommodate all of those, those needs and interests. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So another note, I'm studying for my exams, which I'm going to take here shortly. Um, and so I'm praying and encouraging anyone else who's in that season of their counseling career. Um, if that's you, like share with me your wins and losses. I would love to celebrate with you and I would like to commiserate with you. It's a rough road, like I said earlier in this podcast. And so just being able to build a community of clinicians, whether it's virtually or in person, I think is incredibly important uh, for professional reasons, but also just, just to be encouraged. It's, it can be really hard sometimes. Um, I'm also a military spouse and mom. Uh, so um, this, what I have noticed is sharing that is very helpful because the way you gain your license and practice as a military spouse is very different than how you may be doing it, um, as someone who is not affiliated with the military in any way. So I definitely want to put that out there because I think there is space for sharing tips and tricks for, how um, to get this done and how to keep your sanity and how to um, feel like you're accomplishing things, even though you have a lot of chaos in your life that you don't create, that you're not able to mitigate as easily. So with all that being said, um, you have a community out there waiting to support you. I promise you there is someone who is your type of weird or nerdy or whatever. And let this be the year where um, wherever you are in your journey with mental health, um, either as a client, a cl clinician, someone who's interested in the topic or however, um, I know that we will find our communities this year because we will be looking. And that is um, that is an action that engages incredible inertia. So I will see you in the next one. And I'm so glad you're here.
As ever, I've done my research, but you should too. Check my sources against your own and always exercise sound judgment. If you enjoyed this episode, I invite you to subscribe because I would be glad to have you back for each new episode. I'm so glad you've joined me today and I would love to hear your thoughts. So reach out to me in the comments via the Remedy House website or find me on Instagram. We'll talk soon.